listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, I'm like two years older than him, so I've been watching him through his whole damn career, and he's a tremendous actor. He has over 200 IMDb credits, but then on May 28th of 2020, he decided to pick up a guitar... And I'm sure he probably knew he could sing before because you just don't figure that out. But he picked up a guitar and he started playing and, and now he's got, he's out in the road. He's having fun. And my guest is, I don't know if I should call him Tommy Howe or C. Tommy. Thomas Howe. What do you yeah. like to be called? Who could go through life being called C. Thomas Howell? That would be terrible. Right. <laughs> so, May 28th. Tell me what happened. Because, you know, your website says you picked up a guitar. You had never thought about playing music before well, then? Honestly, I came from a musicless background. There was no music in my home. My father was a pretty serious guy, listened to talk radio and news. In fact, I was probably nine years old before I even knew music came out of the damn radio. It was just not a part of our lives. And uh, when COVID hit, I was I was getting ready to open a play. And I was in L.A., and literally we're four days away from opening night and we had put two months of hard work into this thing and COVID hit and we didn't know what was going on. We thought, well, you know, maybe we'd be shut down a week and then it turned into two weeks and then we thought we'd go back and you know how it started out. None of us knew. So it eventually the play canceled and I was, I was in a location staying in an apartment thinking I'd be going to work doing the play every day and suddenly LA was shut down and there was nothing happening and I I realized that uh, we were probably going to go through something fairly significant I didn't personally see um, an immediate out especially when you know the chaos kicked in and I just decided um, at that time to sort of follow up on an idea that I had been brewing with, and that was that was to do a film called Threads, which is about a former country western star, sort of the J.D. Salinger of country western music. He he's a guy that that put one album together, and uh, he's a cowboy and a rancher, and um, reluctantly his wife sort of sneaks the album out and and releases it, and it and it blew up. And the guy became a recluse and, and a horse trainer and just left the business altogether. That's the idea of the film for me that I would like to do. That being said, uh, I wanted to play my own music and I wanted to sing. Uh, and I ordered a guitar. And I started slowly uh, working on you know chords and strumming patterns and learning some... Uh, really just trying to see if I could get to the point to where I could play a few songs and try to make my portrayal of this character realistic. That was the goal. But quickly, COVID gave me this this quickening. Uh, there was literally no other work. In, in Hollywood virtually shut down. I did Reagan during COVID. And I did, I did a couple of things during COVID. I did, you know... Uh, in fact, it aired just last night, but uh, I'm on this season of The Walking Dead, and it's it's tripled the time involved, and it's isolated you completely. So um, the guitar became a very good friend, and I started spending 
an incredible amount of time with the guitar. And what I didn't anticipate happening was, apart from musically, which is, is playing the guitar is a lifelong journey. That's not something you, you figure out in a year or in two years or even in 10 years. It's just, it's that's what's so beautiful about it and that's what I love about it. But what I didn't anticipate was being able to apply my training in the film industry, my understanding of wordplay, um, really understanding the beginning and the middle of an end of a story, which goes to the beginning and the middle of an end of a scene, to the beginning and the middle of an end of a paragraph, to the beginning and the middle of an end of a sentence, to the beginning and the middle of an end of a, of a word. And you can really sort of break it down like that. Well, same with songwriting. And um, once I stepped into a room with some guys who were pretty good songwriters, you know, Channing Wilson, who uh, wrote She's Got the Best of Me uh, with Luke Combs, and, and he's, you know, top guy. Um, suddenly, there were obvious points that I, I was, you know, in a, kind of a, a different area. Um, I, I quickly proved to be very helpful in, in being able to understand uh, a good story and even irony within a story. And when somebody like, you know, myself can bring up, um, well, I think it's a decent song, but, you know, if a good right turn here would be, you know, for me as a storyteller, more interesting. And then a songwriter can 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 really think about it from a different place, from a guy who came from Hollywood who worked with the best writers. And I'm not a, I'm not a writer, per se, but I worked with the best writers. So I learned so much about it. Uh, and that was not anticipated. Not to get off the, the track here, but that was not anticipated. So, all this being said, I absolutely had no intention ever performing live. I I never ever thought I'd go on a tour. Uh, but as evolution has it, what what happened was very quickly, a friend of mine who was involved with a charity um, said, "Listen, you know, we'd like." a friend of yours to uh, sing a song for this charity in Nashville. And uh, her name is Claudia Hoiser. She's an upcoming country Western singer. This is a young lady. I was doing some work with uh, her manager regarding this movie threads. And so I knew she was very talented and um, potentially right to, to play my daughter in this film. So, I said, look, you know, let's let's try to put this together and we'll meet in Nashville. We'll, we'll record this song for your charity. So I showed up. We did the song. It turned out fantastically. And in that moment, my friend who had been sort of watching uh, what I'd been doing with the guitar a little bit said, why don't you sing a song? And, you know, we'll we're going to stream this event and you can be a part of it. And I quickly denied it. I said, no, that's okay. You know, that's silly. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And he said, no, 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 we're set up. We want you to do it. Let's do it. We were at an Airbnb in Nashville. And I just kind of turned to them and I said, do you know Heaven's Door? You know, and they said, yeah. And we ran through like a five second run and literally did one take. 
and frankly, it turned out pretty damn good. I watched that. I watched it on YouTube uh, yesterday. You know, I mean, who would have known? And, and seriously, if you, uh, if you have two seconds, I don't know if you'll be able to tell, but you can see that like the microphones are really uh, vacuum tubes taped up because we had no equipment. We didn't know we were going to do this, so we sat in front of a fireplace. We just gathered some tape that was in the house. The only thing we could find to use as a any kind of a microphone stand was this vacuum tube, and we just taped it on there and went for it. We did one take. I had never done anything before, and I was petrified because I was like, let me do another take. And they literally said we had no time because they had so much to do. Blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. This is such a long story. The point is that was my sort of uh, – indoctrination into you know the baptism by fire of singing I, I if I would have planned it it would have probably been a disaster but the fact that I just had no idea it was happening and I, I had two minutes to do it and then five minutes later it was done and then when when we watched it we were all sort of mildly surprised how it turned out um, and then slowly that led to Somebody approaching me saying, hey, would you come play live for me at a charity? And like a fool, I accepted. <laughs> and that was really the big mistake because, of, uh, of course, I had to scramble. And I, I, I had a, a gentleman who played the guitar. My friend Kurt Thomas joined me. And we had a little box drummer. And it was just the three of us. And so we went to this little room up in Blue Ridge called The Joint. We probably had 60 to 70 people in there. And it was my very first show. I played all originals, stuff that I had written, um, which I think was sort of surprising for everybody. And uh, all of a sudden, I, 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 I was bitten by the bug. And I really wanted to construct a show around um, storytelling from an honest perspective, my journeys through Hollywood, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to catch some of the end of old Hollywood. It's a very different world now, Hollywood, but I did a movie with Anne Margaret. I did a movie with Elizabeth Taylor. Um, you know, I, I, I spent a good portion of my younger years working with, um, the classic actors and actresses of their time on things that were red carpet events. I mean, you know, films back then were special. You know, you got limousines and you, you went to premieres and you traveled and you promoted them. And, you know, today they just go straight to Netflix and, and it is what it is. And, and it's um, a very different world. So the music... gave me a connection to an audience that I hadn't experienced because I didn't really grow up in the theater in New York. I was an L.A. kid. My father was a stuntman. That's how I got into the business. My father uh, is was one of the best stuntmen uh, for years, and I landed a role in E.T. because I could actually ride the bike and that was a big part of the casting choice in me getting that. A couple of the other kids that he cast could ride the bike, but they couldn't 
really, you know, come sliding or, you know, whatever uh, I was doing on the ranch on my bike all the time. And uh, lo and behold, this kind of career took off through that. So the music thing provided a connection to the people that acting and, and, you know, whether you're doing a film, which takes a year to be released, or even if you're doing episodic TV, the thing about episodic TV is you can bounce around as an episodic television actor. You can go do five performances before one comes out. And then somebody wants to ask you about, Oh, what was it like playing a reaper? And I'm trying to think, well, I've been a cop, um, <laughs> a, a plumber, uh, an arsonist, and um, a pioneer since then, let me think. And, and and there was really, a for me, a disconnect there. I love being able to play a, a small room. That's my favorite. Um, outdoor events are difficult for me. Uh, not in, they're not difficult if I just go there to play music and, and kind of drive that. It's difficult to go be heard in a, in a, in a, I don't want to say a precious way, but in in a sense that a dark room filled with a lot of people with a spotlight can can really um, create a wonderful moment for a lot of us because there is an exchange, and I welcome it, um, and a verbal exchange as well, not just energetically, but a verbal exchange between me and the audience. And it varies because... There are 13-year-old kids who have just discovered The Outsiders, and they're there to see Pony Boy. and, um, you know, they were crying because Johnny was dead, and then they sob even harder when they realize Pony Boy's 55 and old and gray. <laughs> but really, what I didn't anticipate was my stories having value to, to anybody, because it's just me. And you have to understand, when I'm living my life, just like you're living your life, you might have had a couple of experiences that make decent table talk, but it's not like you're sitting in your head going, well, this could hold the attention of 400 people because I'm so fabulous and I have such great <laughs> stories. Like, yeah, but, we don't... but but you got to you gotta say, you know, <clears throat> your roles, you know, through your career, you've been working for so long. So you have a certain part, like for me... I remember Pony Boy. I remember all your early stuff, Red Dawn, all that. And then seeing you on Southland. I love you, Southland, on Southland. And then my wife, per se, watches Criminal Minds, which I didn't. But you have that character. So that's the thing. People, and I've learned this just from interviewing a lot of people and talking to people who aren't in the business, that they're fascinated by the stories that you can tell or an actor can tell because it's not like you were in one movie and you disappeared, and they said, oh, whatever happened to that guy? For you, they've seen you grow. I mean, you went from, I mean, Pony Boy, you were what, 16 maybe? Uh, 14, believe it or not. Yeah, so they've seen you grow. So, I mean, I think that's important that you, you share that. Like, what you know? What was it like for you when Pony Boy became popular? You're a young kid, you're on Tiger Beat, women must have been going crazy, but you're just, as you said, you used to do rodeo. You know, you grew up on a ring. Yeah, you know, you see, I had a father that... really honest with you and, and I've seen a lot of kids um, go through this it's not easy but so much has to do with the parenting of these young actors these these child actors 
And my father wouldn't let me, you know, forget where I came from. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Well, you, you said you, my, you, my you, father rode bulls for 12 years for a living and then became a stuntman. So my father stared death in the eye. And when, and when he looked at me and said, did you clean your room? I was like, I cleaned the entire house, sir. And that was just kind of the way it was. And, and, and you know, my father was very imposing and a larger than life character to me. Never harmed me, never would. Um, I feared him deeply. Uh, just because, like, literally, I'd see him light himself on fire on purpose and jump off a building, you know. And it was like these weren't normal images. Like you're 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 rocking yourself to sleep, and you're thinking of your dad. It, it like that. It's just very different than you know. Dad played ball with me out in the front yard. It's a it's a very surreal experience growing up that way. And then to be able to have uh, Hollywood exposed to me at such a young age. And I'm living the life of, you know, the makings of E.T. had sort of a a, a a very surreal surrounding. I mean, there were there were people um, like the, a very young boy with no legs who could fit into the costume of E.T. and operate it. And there were very tiny people who were walking around who could do different parts. There were puppeteers. There were all kinds of actors and all kinds of um, bits and pieces to this wonderful menagerie that as a young kid could just be completely overwhelming but somehow I fit into it and I really enjoyed the process and I'm one of the well that's not true because I, I, I meet a lot of actors my age that really love what they do but they're more often than not I, I, I come across some established actors that may or may not be completely content with where they are currently and it's tough for a lot of people i i've had my ups and downs in, in hollywood no question no question i've never had marquee status i've never been you know tom cruise or johnny depp at their peak ever never will i be uh but i'm quite proud of the actor i was able to grow into and I and I can recognize the growth and and acknowledge it from an egoless place. I'm I'm quite uh, you know proud is the wrong word, but pleased or satisfied with that because that's you know I don't know if a lot of people could could say that the work in, in Criminal Minds was a very big departure for me, and and, and they took a big leap there with giving me that role you know nobody had offered me the role of a of a villain before and for god's sakes i was i'm pony boy you know <clears throat> but at 17 i did a role with an amazing actor who, that changed my life and it was a film that made me want to commit to being an actor for the rest of my life and up until then i had done some some very good work and some interesting stuff but I hadn't worked with the caliber of actors like Rutger Hauer or Jennifer Jason Lee or Jeffrey DeMond in The Hitcher. These were all um, award-winning actors and completely committed to their craft, completely committed. And for me, I had a 
one time I recall being invited to Rutgers uh, caravan. He had this this big bus that he, he drove around to, to eat lunch. And it was sort of off limits for everybody. Nobody was invited there, especially anybody from production. You have to understand this was a road movie, so it wasn't like we were meeting at, in Hollywood every day. I mean, we were literally on the road. And he's living in this thing saying nobody can come in here. People were like petrified to even knock on the door to say we're ready for you. No, I mean it was it was Rutger Howard, and he invited me in to have lunch. And we walk. I, I walked in with my food and sat down. And he would smoke these um, filterless camels endlessly. And he sat there for about twenty minutes straight. And he was he was smoking and kind of picking tobacco out of his teeth. And finally, just out of fear, I mustered up a little small talk and I I kind of said Rutger. You know, everybody says you're the best bad guy ever. What's your secret to playing bad guys? You know, he kind of looks at me. He's picking this tobacco out of his teeth, and he had this thick Dutch accent, and he just barely whispered across the table as he exhaled this, you know, glob of smoke. And he said, "I don't play bad guys." And that was a really. artistically giant moment for me to come. I had no idea what it meant in the moment. I was very confused. I said nothing else. Quickly went back to the pork chop, finished the peas, and backed my ass out of that trailer. And it rattled around in my head for years, that comment. I didn't quite understand what it meant until I was offered the role of the Reaper in Criminal Minds. And it, it's one thing to read a script like that and say, oh, I want to play this serial killer. And then it's another thing altogether when they say, okay, we want you to play the serial killer. Because then you go, oh, God, now what, right? You, you, have, to, you have to design this thing. And, and, and I started really for some reason, thinking about what Rutger had told me. And it was it was a flash of brilliance for me because it was the key to the Reaper. And to this day, I get a lot of people coming up to me and they say things like, oh my God, you know, Criminal Minds, you're a psycho and I hated you and that and the things you did and you were horrible. And, you know, the, it's a compliment, but also... It's a, it, what the beauty of that is this. Rutger taught me that he, as the bad guy, you still have to look for the humanity in the role. You still have to make a connection and not play the bad guy as an immortal that is, you know, uh, death defiable like like no bullet can kill me you know th that's where i think movies go wrong with a lot of the a lot of these choices and rutger had this this artistic beauty to him whether it was in blade runner where where you know all of those things like pushing the thing through his hand at the end that 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 nail or that stake was his idea all these things like in the hitcher when he put the pennies in my eyes or when he had the white flag waving out of the truck as he drove by, all these things were all his idea. And he really taught me that it was okay to think outside of the box. He really taught me how to 
own a performance. Because up until then, I was trained to do what was on the page and not to vary from that. Now, I don't approach the work like I'm better than the written word. I revere the page and want to make it the best I can. However, I also contribute now because, let's face it, if we can make it better, then it's better. Now, if I make an offering and and it gets shot down, at a young age, I would resent you as a director and I would uh, uh, repay you with misbehavior or the next take uh, intentionally uh, 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 bad to show you you were wrong. That's how um, childish I was. But today, I'm very capable of making that offer and um, having it set aside and really trying to understand what your vision is and make it the best I can. And all that growth, um, getting back to Rudker and applying that to this character for me over the years was such an honor because because when, when you watch that Criminal Minds character now, um, he does some pretty heinous things, but he's pretty grounded and he he's pretty normal, which makes it really creepy. And Rutger really helped me understand that. And I'd say for me, that was um, a departure role for me and a, and a, and a proud moment as a, as an artist, because uh, it's, it's easy to overdo those parts and easy to overact them and easy to try a little too hard. And, and that's what you get at the end. You get somebody who looks like they're trying a little too hard and it's a, it's a fine line. You know, it's like every actor's opportunity. You know, we all want to win an award, man. This is my moment. But you know what? The truth is like, you, you can't try hard and it takes a long time to learn that and those that learn it young boy they get big they blow up their careers blow up and 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 rightfully so because it's uh it's 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 tricky to maintain that now how have your choices as an actor changed you know when you were younger I mean, you know, you did. You were in those movies, Secret Admirer, different stuff. You know, Red Dawn. Well, I was playing the teenager then, right? You right. know. So, but what, what kind of roles were they offering you? Because you know, you did sit there, and people said, "Oh, you know, I remember girls. Oh, see, Thomas House, so hot." Da, 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 you know. But what were they asking? Were they? And was there any roles that you turned down because you just said, oh, I, yeah. "I can't play this shit." Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and you know. All that stuff forms your character. I mean, for example, um, I read a screenplay that was extremely mediocre called The Karate Kid. And I went in and met John Avelson and had a long talk with him about that movie. And he was very interested in me. And I went home and decided to do a movie called Secret Admirer instead. And what a huge mistake. Secret Admirer was an amazing screenplay. It read so well, and it was written by David Greenwald and Jim Kauf, who are one of the premier writing duos in Hollywood, and even ran the, a show that everyone's familiar with for on NBC for years called Grimm. They created Grimm. I mean, these are top, top writers, these guys. 
but hindsight, I mean, wouldn't I, wouldn't I have rather played, uh, you know, Danielson and made ten million for Karate Kid Three at the end of it all? Yeah, I did one Secret Admirer, and in a weird way, it's quite popular uh, even today with a lot of people that are my age. But um, it's not pop culture iconic like you know Ralphie's movie, the the, the Karate Kid. I was, you know, for, I was a virtual lock for Marty McFly. I had been rehearsing with everybody for two weeks. At that time, I was, you know, considered one of the, one of the, the, the you know, the young hot kids on the block. Um, I had done E.T. Spielberg was one of the producers. Uh, I had done Red Dawn already. I had worked with Leah Thompson. I had been rehearsing with... Uh, director and Crispin Glover and all the actors. I had a dressing room. I was fitted for all my clothes. We were just about to get ready to sign the deal and begin shooting. And a movie came out for Universal called Mask. And it starred Eric Stoltz. And it was quite successful and very different from Back to the Future. But they immediately gave me the hook and offered the role to Eric Stoltz. Somebody thought that would be a great idea to put Eric into the film and I had known Eric for a long time and, and Eric at a very young age was a very good actor and to get extremely seriously and probably was a little bit of a miscast from um, the studio side because Eric was a poet man Eric was an artist he was different you know he, he was sensitive and special uh, and I think probably suffered in the role of Marty McFly. I, I, I would have loved to have had the chance to, to have played that role to see what I could have done with it. I love what Michael did with it, but they shot, I think, a month with Eric, and it just didn't really go right. And it just didn't have the energy that they had hoped for. And, you know, Michael was Alex P. Keaton coming off of Family Ties or was still on Family Ties. That was a huge hit. He was, like, on the cover of all the magazines because he was the driving force of that show. And I think they just really wanted that kind of energy, that sitcom tone that Eric couldn't provide. Eric was, you know, like I said, a very different type of an actor at that time. So they made the change. A very ironic twist. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. Uh, I'm sitting in a restaurant called uh, The Source in Hollywood early one morning having some breakfast well, early it's probably 10 o'clock and in comes a friend of mine that I, I had worked with on a film called Grandview USA an actor named Johnny Philbin who happened to be and still probably is best friends with Eric Stoltz they went to USC together and they studied acting together in comes a very despondent Eric Stoltz behind him I don't really know what's going on I know that you know he took a gig that I really wanted to do but such is life, you know, in Hollywood, we, we, we all were supportive of each other back then. We didn't have devices and we weren't hiding behind keyboards and hating each other. We were, you know, actually communicating. Uh, and John saw me and they came right to my table. And I said, I was looking at Eric and I looked at Johnny and I was like, what's going on, man? And he said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? And he goes, they just fired Eric today. And I looked at Eric and he was like, speechless 
And I was like, what? You know, what's the, what are the chances that the guy that I lost a job to would get fired and, and walk into the place where I was eating and, and, and tell me, like, this is where they came. Like, they just got the news, you know? So, of course, I was I was caught in between, oh, my God, that's horrible, and, oh, my God, are they going to call me, right? <laughs> I mean, that was the real – That's that was the truth in that moment. So I finished my pancakes, excused myself from the table, um, you know, mentioned how horrible it was a few times as I kind of rushed off to a phone and was immediately told that they went with Michael Fox and relived, you know – uh, being fired all over again, even though I wasn't even hired, it just was. It's, it was as equally painful. Um, and then, you know, had to suffer through three more of those very successful movies, and Michael being on the on every Taco Bell cup uh, ever. And um, you know, it was probably okay that that didn't happen for me in terms of what kind of actor I turned into because I'm, I'm, I'm a, more of an actor than I am a celebrity. Uh, you know, even though I would happily be a celebrity, I just, um, I'm a little bit more of a hardworking guy, you know, and, and a lot of my work comes from rehires. Like if you hire me, you want to work with me again. I'm that guy. Uh, because I mean, my father, like I said, uh, a stunt man who taught me from his perspective, listen, you know, it's like stuntmen are heroes during the stunt, but as soon as the stunt's over and they're in pain, drag their butts off the set and let's bring in the actor. It, it, it's, it's a thankless job, but there used to be some chivalry and something kind of personally heroic about, about knowing that as a stuntman, you took pride in the audience thinking that was your actor, not stepping out saying, I do all the stunts for Tom Cruise. That wasn't something you did back in the day. You you pushed your guy forward, you know, and there was things like loyalty. There, That doesn't exist anymore. But a, a, an actor would bring his stunt guy with him on all his films, man. And, like, you were a team, you know, just like uh, the, the, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with, with you yeah. know, Brad, and, and, and that's that's how it was back then, you know. Like there was loyalty, and um, it, it's you took care of each other is the point. Well, it's a very different time now, right? And and Hollywood's gone through a lot. Hollywood's gone through things like hashtag Me Too. Hollywood um, really is interested in righting the wrongs that have occurred in the past. There are lawsuits, there are people going to jail, there are people who are fired, and there are people now getting opportunities that may or may not have received those opportunities in the past in position of uh, production, producership, directorship, um, those type of positions. There's a little bit of a learning curve involved, which you know I find um, at times to be trying because as a, as a veteran – I'm now coming on sets, prominent sets, um, meeting people who are directors that have never done it before. And they're being given these positions for political, obvious reasons that I'm all for, 
but it's a tough entry-level position when you're surrounded by people who've been doing it their whole lives and now you're the person that has to know the most on the set and you're actually the person that knows the least it becomes a challenge so that's where we are right now we're in we're in a place right now that is filled with covid um uh politically uh uh what would the word be just it's fiery you know hollywood is a is a is an interesting place because there's no sense of humor anymore and you have to really um, be sensitive in places where we kind of took for granted before, you know, it was like those late night uh, uh, sort of, you know, what would now be considered a very inappropriate remark would generate a laugh back in the day that you would think would be okay well now we'll get you marked up on the list you know you'll get a call from warner brothers uh, like h&r hey man did you say this and you're like oh my god that's not happened to me i'm just simply saying that's the life we're in now we are we when i said yesterday there is a very large um agreement and explanation of harassments and behaviors and very specific guidelines to being involved. And you said you saw Southland. Real quick story. I'm sorry. This is quite funny to me. <clears throat> I told you my father was a stunt coordinator. So the people that made Southland are the same people that went off to go do a show. Basically, the crew and a lot of like the, the main director, Chris Chulak, a lot of the, the people were from Southland went off to go do a show called Longmire, which my father was a stunt coordinator of for like seven years, the whole run. Again, somehow that had something to do with Warner Brothers and um, Warner Brothers had a very, this was a very sensitive time. This was just a few years back. Called in uh, this group of people. It was my father, um, this cinematographer, Jimmy Muro, who was the cinematographer on Southland. Um, the director, Chris Chulak, who was the producer, showrunner, director of Southland, as well as Longmire. The three of them had to go in to this seminar, this sort of um, harassment se se seminar where they're going to show them some footage. And it's about a, I don't know, a 10 minute little clip put together, basically, of this cop with horrible, horrible behavior harassing people. And they're all three watching this, and it happens to be me as Dewey from Southland doing these things. Boom, the film goes off. You know, the young kid with the glasses who's clearly in charge of running, you know, the, 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 the class daily, you know, uh, looks to my father and says, well, sir, you know, what do you think of this? And, and daddy says, well, I thought the acting was fabulous. <laughs> and they go to the, the next guy, Jimmy Muro, who shot and said, okay, well, sir, what do, we, what do you think of this? He says, I thought it was lit wonderfully. And they get to Chris Julak and said, uh, you know, this isn't going well. What, what, sir, what did you think of this? He says, excellently directed. And that was what they had to say about it. So it was the three of them who made what they were, you know, showing. Uh, and it just turned out to be hysterical that my father was watching his son um, learning about things not to do. Now let me let me so, ask you something. Let me ask you something about Southland. Did 
when I always wonder, I hear different stories, you know, when you play a police officer on TV, do police come up to you and say, hey, man, you know, you're going over a little, like, for that character, because Dewey was, you know, you know, not the best guy, but did you get any police interaction with I, I have to tell you, I still get people, police officers coming to me, n- never referring to him being a nice guy or not a nice guy, always referring to, oh, oh, man, I've worked with guys like him. You you know, you played him to a T. So I appreciate that aspect of it. You know, there were old school guys that, you know, behaved as if the world wasn't being watched by video. And it was a very different behavior. And I think today, I mean, you know, all the cops are wearing body cams. All the cars have cams. Everything's pretty much videoed and recorded. And there is a protocol uh, that is very different than, you know, how things used to be. And that was a, a role for me that was a little bit like, it was kind of like robbing, stealing candy from a baby. Because, you know, when you play the lead and you and your your character is the good guy, there's only so much you can do. What makes your show exciting when you're the good guy is all the little characters that can go berserk around you. And it's sort of seen through your eyes. So there's only as that character so much you can do. But when you come in as you know somebody like Dewey, say it takes eight days to shoot that show. You know, Max, I'm working four days. And my stuff is always pivotal, critical, like... He's the guy that comes in with the can of gasoline and lights it up and everybody is reactive because, you know, he wants to fight the female officer that's like, you know, up in his face. It's it's like, you know, most guys are like, hey, don't hit a woman. He's like, no, I'm going to kill her. And and then, and you know, it's just a different beast that. So people would say, God, I, you know, I hated you, but I loved you. So that that's a really... That's an important character to have in your story. It's an incendiary, you know, role. And I was very uh, clear on what my responsibility was in that piece. Also, I will tell you this. um, I was only hired to do the pilot. I I, I was, you know, I was shot in the chest and wheeled out in a gurney. And I was never supposed to come back. And the, the show got picked up and they called my agent. They said, you know... We, we're going to bring him back to the next episode. And I thought, I was really excited. I was like, great, maybe I can hang in there and, you know, do a few episodes of the show. I, I, I was really hopeful. And I read the next episode, and it was all about me retiring. I was leaving the force, and it was like literally the whole episode was about my character retiring. And at the end of this episode, I give this sort of four-page speech to uh, the force and family members and I was I was despondent, and I was like, God, man, you know, okay, I, that was my chance. I really wanted to be a part of this. Well, you know, it it was just a character that I really deeply understood. It, it, sometimes we come across this in, as an actor, and a lot of times we'll play characters that we shouldn't play, and we're miscast, or we're taking a check, or we're trying something, or we're sorry, did I lose you? You're back. We're trying something or we're hoping. I'm going to plug in just one second. I'm so sorry. I beg your pardon. But this character really fit me. 
it was a, it was a a different. Uh, I wasn't afraid of, it. And, and it was something that I had been around in my life. You know, my 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 growing up. Um, I saw a lot of these type of people, and when I finished the second episode, we got we got to the last day. Um, and I and I gave my speech and I and I hit it out of the park. I knew I, I had done some really good work in that episode, and I was sad going home. And my phone rang, and it was my agent. And he said, "You know, what the heck did you do?" And I and I didn't know what he was talking about, of course. And he said, "They want to bring you back. They want to keep you for you know the rest of the season." And I was like, "Yes, you know, it was such a a victory because." I didn't start out that way. You know, I very clearly was only on for the pilot. And then I got one episode out of it. And, and it, it, it really connected with me, this role. And I think, I think they saw that. And then I thought, well, what are they going to do, man? How can they bring me back? I came back the very next episode. I think my scene starts in a locker room. A guy looks at me and says, Dewey, I thought you were tired. And I say something like, and give that bitch half my pension? Are you crazy? And I was on for the next five years, man. <laughs> now, you know, you, you've been on the sets like you know, Southland. There's a, it's a good crew, uh, a lot of good actors. You know, did that, does camaraderie start from when you were younger? Because I think about it, when you were in The Outsiders, every young actor was in that. What was it like on that set in like Red Dawn where there has to be a little bit of young ego because you guys are all like trying to, Get, come on, but what was it like? Did that make you more grounded being around a set like that where there was so many different people where no one could really say, hey, I'm, I'm the big cheese? Now, are you talking about the just, just all projects or referring to Outsiders specifically? Outsiders and Red Dawn where you have younger well, guys. Well, you know, you, you know, we were... You see, there's something beautiful about children. And when I say children, you know, under the age of 20, uh, because I think most of them were 18. I was the youngest. And then there was a 20-year-old, and then Ralph was a little bit older, and then Patrick was, you know, quite a bit older, but still had a real young heart and younger brothers and siblings and was real capable of dealing uh, well in that environment. Patrick and I did three pictures together. And we were like brothers for real. Uh, I loved him. But, you see, our connection went deeper. I knew Patrick before we did The Outsiders. Uh, my father was a stunt coordinator on a film called Urban Cowboy. And he taught John Travolta how to ride the bucking machine. And Patrick Swayze's mother, Patsy, was the dance choreographer on the film. So Patrick was hired to work with John and was one of the teachers to help John learn how to two-step. So I was there riding the bucking machine because I, I was actually riding steers and bulls as a youngster and I loved to ride the bucking machine, but John had a small um, fear of it going quicker. He, and, and so my dad brought me in and kind of threw me on it and was you know, turned it up and I was just laughing and having a great time. And John saw this child on this bucking machine 
and all of a sudden was like, hey, you know, uh, let, let me let me get on that. So essentially that, that turned into um, me meeting Patrick and becoming friendly with Patrick. And I think I was 12. You know, this was uh, early 79. And Patrick was a youngster as well. Um, I think he was back from work, like he had gone to New York and he had been dancing at, at the ballet uh, at, at the top, you know, with the top dancers in New York. And he had blown out a knee and he was uh, now working with Patsy and teaching Travolta how to two-step. And the irony there, um, for me, I mean, the fact that we would we would embark on this three picture journey, uh, and two of them, I mean, the Outsiders and Red Dawn, you know, fairly important from from you know an eighties film perspective, and and uh, one of them, I think we all could have lived without Grandview wasn't great, but you know, two out of three ain't bad, and Patrick and I were very very close. Getting back to your question, and I'm sorry, but I, I, I never had an issue with Patrick until we did Red Dawn, and I, I became close with Darren Dalton, who was in The Outsiders as well. There were three of us from The Outsiders, Darren Dalton, Patrick, and myself that did Red Dawn, and Darren and I were, were very close even on the set of The Outsiders, but Charlie Sheen fit into the that to some really well and Patrick had a hard time uh, at one point and took me aside and said you know it's a little clicky and you guys think you're a little cool and you know you should cool your jets and things were getting a little sticky and Milius called like a what he called a team meeting and brought us all into the room and, and we got to hash it out and everybody was sort of given, you know, the proverbial talking stick and had their chance to to go. And the idea was we're going to leave it here and we're going to go back to work. And everybody got to say their thing. And I think that was hard for Patrick because I can remember um, – and, and I wish I could remember what I said, but I can remember saying what I said and Milius agreeing with me. And, and Patrick, I'll never forget this. It broke my heart because he, he was so emotional. He was such an emotional guy that he, he had to, it took everything in that moment to not, to not cry because we were all so worked up and I like spilled my beans and, I, and my heart out. And I was like, blah, 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 blah. And Milius kind of looked at me and looked at Patrick and he said, he's right. He's right, Patrick. And and that gutted him. That gutted him. And and that was the only... And then we went on to do another film after that. Actually, not true. We had done Red Dawn. Oh, we had done... Red Dawn was the third one. You know what? I'm looking, I'm looking back at this. That was our third picture. And I don't know if, you know, energetically something had shifted, but I'll never forget... We were always very close, and we continued to ride horses together, and I would visit him many times, and we stayed very close after the filming. But when the film was almost over, he came up to me, and he 
kind of put his arm around me and he said, you know, this is going to be our last picture together. And I, that really caught me a little bit off guard because, you know, he was like an older brother to me. And, and I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, that was our third picture. I guess, what are we going to do? Our fourth and a fifth picture together? Maybe he was right. But is that something you need to verbalize to somebody? And, and I was young, so it hit me kind of hard. You know, I think I was 16 when I did Red Dawn. And it was, it was difficult to not take that personally. You know, I understand what he meant now. I understand, like, look, we, we, we're not Oliver and Hardy here. You know, we're not Abbott and Costello. We're not, we're not taking it on the road, man. It's like we've done three pictures in a couple of years. We're probably going to go our separate way now. And that was hard for me to hear because, you know, I loved him. And, and um, that meant a disconnection that I wasn't necessarily ready to admit because I wasn't an adult enough to handle that. Now, you've been telling some great stories. Are these what you're going to tell when you take your music out on the road? Because how do you, how do you balance it? Because, you know, I, I, I went to see Chris Barron from Spin Doctors the other night, and uh, he's been on my show before, and, and I've seen him perform, and he tells stories, and he tells his stories, and he plays his song. How are you going to balance these stories? Because, one, you've had such a long career. You've been in so many, you know, great sh- movies and TV shows. How, do you, how do, are you going to formulate this presentation? Well, listen, I'm learning that it's not it, it, it's it's not one show fits all it really varies where i go and play my viewpoints um and opinions are welcomed more in some venues than in others so my awareness to where i'm at helps form those stories and my musical choice, the sound of my music, um, supports the stories as well. You know, I'm not an electric guitar, uh, you know, keyboard band. You know, we're we're mandolin and harmonica, and, and you know, we're an acoustic set. We're a five piece set that is. It's got sort of a, you know, a mountain flair. It's it's you know, I think. I think people that would hear it would say that it has a bluegrass sense, but it doesn't have, the, it's not traditional bluegrass. Bluegrass is, you know, that very lightning, fast picking sound. We're not that, but we are, you know, kind of mountain, sort of a mountain sound that um, supports storytelling. And uh, my storytelling you know, it's funny because my audience is filled with 13-year-olds that, that have just discovered the outsiders. And, you know, I've got my share of, uh, you know, people my age or if not older hanging out. And uh, it's funny because there are certain rooms that um, I have to be really aware of. And my, my, the, the choice of the stories um, vary. Frankly, I'm a little bit more comfortable being a little looser and even getting blue and, and, and kind of pushing the boundaries. I, I like that. 
but that's not always welcome. And I had to learn that. And that's been a struggle trying to find the balance within that because whatever worked over here on Friday night, which was our best show ever, let's go do that You know, next Friday night. You could tank with the exact show because it's not the same people, man. And it's hard to not hold on to something that worked. It's hard to be fluid when something works. It's hard to be completely present and allow an organic show to take place and trust that it's going to be good every single time, especially when you haven't done it before, like me. So when something works, I tend to want to hold on to it and carry it over. And then I got to realize, wait, that's not, you know, that, that didn't work because um, th- this is a, a, a family event. This is a, everybody brought their three-year-olds and their nine-year-olds here. And maybe E.T. would be a better story than, you know, some <laughs> something about, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis or something. And so me- it... it Give me, give if me that one of your. Matters is what I'm trying to say. Give, give me one of your good blue stories before we go. Tell, tell me a, a good blue story that you you can tell in some places and you can't in other. Because I want to hear this. Well, well, like, uh, you know, I mean, times were different back then, man. It just, it, there was an, there was an innocence to. Um, to life that we that doesn't exist anymore because these kids have all the answers in their pockets and their iPhones. I mean, these kids can pull up anything, including porn and anything they want, is in their pocket. So, you know, when we didn't have that, there was something amazing about you know discovering an answer. I mean, it was literally like a godsend, you know, and whether it was you're doing a book report and, and you're, you, you know, on, on Lithuania, but somebody has checked out the L encyclopedia and you can't find that answer. And then, and then you get it. There was a celebration. Well, it was like that for me as a kid, you know, going through the outsiders was incredible because it had this beetle esque energy to it. And for why, I don't know, we were virtual unknowns, but literally there would be women's, you know, sleeping in the hallways of the hotel rooms and just kind of like pining and pawing and, you know, pretty much without giving away any names, anybody could kind of open a door and do whatever they wanted to do. Well, you know, today, first of all, that's just non-existent. I mean, I mean, there are, you know, this was, there wasn't even AIDS, man. Do you know what I mean? It was it was an innocent time. It was like you could do crazy stuff and uh, not have your entire life ruined. You know, you you were able to live a little bit. And and you know, I'm not going to really get into details on what the stories were. I'm just trying to share with you in in what I can get into a little bit. For example, you know. What I find to be, um, there's some really great, here's a story that's not really blue, but it's an interesting story and it's important. And it's about Patrick and it's about um, Jennifer Grey. There was a love scene written between the two of them in Red Dawn. And Patrick was really against it. 
and he really didn't want to do it. And and he just felt like he didn't push the story forward, and it was gratuitous and unnecessary. But Jennifer Riley disagreed. It was like three pages of dialogue from her character in a big moment, you know. And a love scene with Patrick Swayze, and she was in probably a little bit not that happy that he didn't really want to do it. So, the long long story short, it it the scene was was cut, and um, she was extremely upset, and the two of them did not get along for the rest of filming, and we all went our separate ways, and that relationship ended not well. We'll cut to a couple years later, this movie, Dirty Dancing, rolls around, and Jennifer was hired first. She had the her role. Baby was hired first, way before they found Johnny. And I know they went all over hell to find that character of Johnny. Could you imagine after, you know, six cities and 500 auditions, they finally come to her and say, we found your guy. <laughs> it's your bestie, the incredible Patrick Swayze. Aren't you excited? I mean, she literally must have Peter Pan's. I mean... <laughs> And, and and the beauty of that story is what a great film. So Patrick was able to get through whatever it was that she took very personally and then had to understand because of his connection with her on that movie that no, his choice was artistic. It wasn't personal. He did not feel that a love scene in Red Dawn was appropriate. And I feel he's right. Uh, and he could get into this movie with her and make a beautiful, beautiful movie. And the two of them became very good friends. So, you know, it's those insightful moments for me that I was able to experience firsthand um, that I love to share. You know, some really personal moments with Elizabeth Taylor. She told me an amazing story about James Dean on the set of Giant. Said that Dean was so incredibly shy that they had 300 people roped off in Marfa, Texas, all watching him you know, do this scene and George Stevens was frustrated because he wouldn't come out of his trailer and Dean just didn't want to do the scene in front of all these people and finally Elizabeth Taylor went over and knocked on the door and said, darling, you got to come out, we got to go to work and we got to do this and Dean comes out, looks at all the people and he turns his back to them and he pees on his dressing room tie and he zips up his pants and he comes and, and right in front of Elizabeth and George Stevens and, and George says, boy, what are you doing? And he looks at me and says, well, I figure if I could do that, we go do this scene. Let's get her done. <laughs> now, that's a very James Dean moment. And, you know, that's something she told me directly. And, and, and those type of things I cherish. And one day, I do plan to write a book. But I can't get over the fact that even though I could write a second book or a third book, like, when you write a book about your life, and I still feel like your life's over. And I've just been like, I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> So I'm able to do this and tell a few stories and share a few moments um, that seem to matter. And if I can get a couple of comments from a couple of kids on my, uh, you know, on my DMs that, that where they say, you know, wow, I didn't know that was country music. I really liked that. You know, I was able to write a song called Pony Girl that, um, the kids really, really, really like a lot. And so a couple of things are happening, you know, a couple of world, worlds are colliding. <coughs> People are being introduced to a couple of things. And whether or not you like country music isn't the point because you leave hopefully feeling better. 
Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And as I said, it's, you, uh, it's great. I, I did watch the YouTube video of you guys doing uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door. And, I appreciate um, it. And it was good. And I was like, cool, you know, because, you know, you think of someone, and I just said Dave with the company on uh, a few weeks ago, and he's doing music. And you think, you know, you see these actors, and you're like, it takes a lot of balls because people think, oh, you're an actor. But then you hear the music, and you go, hey, it's good. And yours was good, so that counts. So Thank you so much. Now, now your website is TommyHowMusic.com. Yes, sir. And you're on Instagram. Is it at Tommy How Music? Instagram is the real C. Thomas Howell. Okay, so people, go check out his website. Check out his music. Go on YouTube. Check his videos out. Go to uh, Instagram. Follow him. He has a lot of good things popping up there. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 870 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.